So as you know, uh, many of my sermons will have three points, sometimes four points, sometimes only two points. Well, today we have no points. And uh, I know many of you are thinking, great, another pointless sermon from Forsyth. <laughs> but hang with me a little bit, because what I would like us to do today is, is come to the foot of the cross and have our eyes drawn to the parchment that is fastened to the top, on which is written the charge for which Christ died. And the story of how that parchment got there is fascinating, full of irony, full of drama, full of injustice, full even of grace. So if you will pick up your Bible and look at verse 28 of chapter 18 with me, let's work our way through this amazing story. Kicks off early that Friday morning before the city of Jerusalem has even rubbed sleep from its eyes and the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin has condemned Jesus to death. Finally, they think, we are going to shut this guy up once and for all. I love that they don't know yet that even death isn't going to shut this guy up. Okay? And so they're desirous to um, put him to death, but they know that they don't have the authority to execute this sentence. And so early that morning, as the city is waking up, they whisk him off to the Roman governor. They whisk him off to Pilate's house. Verse 28, we read that upon arrival, they, they knock on the door, but then they don't go in. Why? Because they think to themselves, surely there's going to be something in the home of this pagan Gentile that would make us ceremonially unclean. And isn't this just typical of religious people? Typical of religious people in that they're all worked up about ritual purity, and yet they don't care at all about the horrific injustice that they're in the act of perpetrating. A good reminder to us all not to fixate on the small things while forgetting the bigger picture. Verse 29, though, Pilate's finishing breakfast and he hears this commotion outside. And so he goes out onto his balcony and he looks down and he sees that they've brought this prisoner to him. And so he asks them, what accusation do you bring against this man? The reply he receives immediately shows us that there's great tension between these two groups. Tension between the religious leaders and Pilate himself. You see what they say there in verse 30? If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate, they're saying, don't waste our time with your questions. We have a court and our court has ruled. We've not come here for insight. We've not come here for wisdom. We've not come for a ruling. We've made our own ruling. All we need from you is the rubber stamp. So give it to us and we'll be on our way. Verse 31 Pilate's response is equally dismissive. Okay, big boys, he says, you have your own courts. Go and try them in your own courts. Do what you want to do. As he turns to go, though, we read that the Jews persist. Why? Because they don't just want Jesus dead. They want him crucified. They're not going to be content just to see him die. They, they want him crucified. Why? Because they know that nothing would so discredit his mission, and nothing would so disprove his claims to be God as to be crucified. Why? Because their scriptures tell him, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so crucifixion is exactly the kind of death that they want. What they don't realize is that it's also exactly the kind of death that Christ has planned. And so comes verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going 
to die. Pilate then re-enters his headquarters, and we see this again and again in the text. He's endlessly going inside and outside, inside and outside, seeing Jesus, seeing the leaders, seeing Jesus, seeing the crowd. He's back and forth more than a jack-in-the-box. He goes back inside, though, and he summons Jesus to his office, and he says, are, are you the king of the Jews? On one hand, he takes this charge seriously, because you know, claim to be a king is bound to stir up, stir up some uh, political unrest, and that's not good for, for his career. On the other hand, though, he's also incredulous, because he can't really believe that this unkempt man before him is any kind of king at all. Then in verse 34, for the first time in our text, Jesus speaks. And he answers Pilate's question with another question. You see it there? Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Now, Jesus isn't just being difficult here. He's not just refusing to answer Pilate's question. The problem is that he can't really answer yes or no. He's asked, are you the king of the Jews? And he can't really say yes or no. If he says yes then Pilate will think he is that kind of king who has come to stir up political unrest. If he says no, then he'll be denying that he's any kind of king at all. And neither of those options is in the least bit accurate. Verse 35, Pilate responds to Jesus' question, which was in response to a question with another question. So we're not making great progress in this conversation. Pilate asks a question, Jesus asks a question, Pilate asks another question. Am I a Jew? He says, you can just hear the disdain in his tone as he makes clear that he doesn't want to be associated in any way with what, in his view, is this insipid group. Am I a Jew, he says, but, but tell me, do tell me, what have you done to make this crowd so wild with you? What have you done so that they want you dead? What are you guilty of? Verses 36 and 37 we get a conversation about the nature of Jesus' kingdom. I am a king, Jesus says. I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. And think about that. The evidence proves it. I don't have an army. My followers don't fight. We're not here to stir up political unrest. I am here to usher in a kingdom of truth, and my subjects are those who love the truth. Verse 38, Pilate then responds with perhaps his most famous words. The air of disdain in his voice continues as he says, but what is truth? And again, there's just great irony in this moment. As Pilate looks into the eyes of the one who is the very definition and embodiment of truth. The one who is the way, who is the truth, who is the life. Pilate looks into the man's of this eyes who is the truth and says, ah, but what, what is truth? Challenging application at this point comes to us from Joy Davidman. She was the atheist poet and writer who came to faith before going on to marry C.S. Lewis. And she's writing on this section and she describes Pilate's question as the lie of the skeptic bound hand and foot in despair. Who would rather than face his own sins, who, sorry, who rather than face his own sins will even doubt his own reality. Pilate's question, who rather than face his own sins will even doubt his own reality. You understand what Joy Davidman is saying to us? She's saying, accepting our own sin is hard. It's hard to be honest with ourselves and with others and acknowledge that 
we're broken people who've done things wrong and have not done the things that we ought to have done. It's hard, especially in our culture in our day and in our age, to have any notion that we might have done wrong before a holy God. It's hard to accept that we're sinful. And so in order to deal with this reality and feel good about ourselves, what we do is redefine what's right and redefine what's wrong. It's a, a moving of the goalposts in order to suit our own proclivities. So don't hold me to truth because, you know, what, what's truth? It might be true for you, but it might not be true for me. This uh, subtle um, thinking, of course, explains some of the cultural trends that we see around us. That abortion isn't murder, it's the woman's right to choose. Homosexuality isn't sin, it's just the freedom to love whom you choose. And of course, what we see playing out in a cultural level plays out in our own lives, in our own homes, in a thousand ways, on a thousand days, as we believe those things that are convenient for us to believe in order that we won't have to face up to our sin and to our brokenness. We are quick to make truth convenient, and we ought to be careful unless we follow in Pilate's footsteps. Let's dive back in then to verse 38, where Pilate goes back outside, and not we read that it's no longer just the religious leaders are there, but a large crowd has gathered too. And here, for the first time, he issues his conclusion on the case when he says, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him, Pilate says. Really, Pilate? Good. That's the right conclusion. So set him free. You yourself have said that now he's innocent, so what are, what are we waiting for? Send him on his way. Perhaps you could even pull in these religious authorities and rebuke them for bringing such spurious charges against this holy man. But even if you don't want to do that, at least just send this innocent man on his way. What else is there to say? Unfortunately, though, Pilate is not content just to do the right thing. He's one of those guys who wants to find a way to be popular for it. He's not just content to do what's right. He wants to be popular for it. And so in his most magnanimous voice, verse 39, he says, You have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. This practice was probably to commemorate how the Israelites had been released from Egypt. At Passover, they're celebrating that great event when the Israelites came out of Egypt. And evidently, the Roman authorities had, by a show of goodwill, marked this occasion in the life of the Israelites by releasing to them a prisoner at this time of year. And so Pilate says to the crowd, do you want me to release to you this Jesus? So you see, instead of just doing what he has said is the right thing to do, He tries to paint his decision as a gift to the people, a gift to the crowd. In verse 40, though, it quickly becomes clear that he has badly misread the crowd. Rather than giving thanks for this generous offer, they turn on him and then, stirred up by the religious leaders, they yell out, not Jesus, but Barabbas. Not Jesus, but Barabbas. Barabbas, we're told in this text, is a robber. In other texts, we're told that he'd been part of an insurrection, was guilty even of murder. The crowd call for this violent man to be set free, while Jesus, the the Prince of Peace, is condemned. A helpful reminder to me and perhaps to us all, Pilate made the mistake of thinking that you can lead by popular opinion. Don't be so fearful of the crowd that we can't bring ourselves to do what's right. Today's trends, we say, are tomorrow's trash. 
And basing your opinions upon them might work in the short term, but in the long run lead to disaster. Principles that have important value to us as we are in the classroom or in the office or even in our own homes. At the start of chapter 19, though, the text becomes a little darker and the, 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 uh, the scene becomes a little morbid. Pilate's first attempt to release Jesus has failed, and so he enacts a second and, and, and more sinister plan. Going back inside, he has Jesus flogged. Remember last week we thought about the brutality of that moment, so harsh that many people didn't survive that initial flogging. After that, we read in verses 1 through 3 that the soldiers have their fun. This is when they crown him with a crown of thorns and robe him in this purple garb and then mockingly fall at his feet as if worshipping him. Then in verses 4 and 5, Pilate goes back outside and he takes Jesus with him and he says, see it there? See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know, may know what? I find no guilt in him. Behold the man. So here's what's, what, what Pilate's doing. He's, he's brought Jesus out, and Jesus is standing there, his bloodied back oozing into these garments, an exhausted expression hanging beneath that crown of thorns. He's been beaten and abused and mocked and broken, and he's just in a state. And Pilate thinks to himself, surely the condition of this man will satisfy the bloodthirst of the crowd. Surely when they see him and behold him as he is, They'll think, you know, what kind of king could this guy ever be? And will relent and be satisfied that they've done enough. But in verse 6, we see that, again, Pilate has, has misread the crowds. For them, this act of violence has served as nothing more than an appetizer because they all cry out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And then, for the third and final time, Pilate pronounces Christ innocent. Take him yourselves, he says, and crucify him. Why? For I find no guilt in him. Once evil gets rolling, it's very hard for it to change its course. We know that ourselves. Once we get involved in something we ought not, it's very hard to get out of it. And oh, that someone in the crowd that day would have had the wisdom to see that what they're doing is wrong and the strength of character and conviction to stand up and do something about it. Oh, that we would have the same in our own lives. But no one did on that day. And so in verses 7 through 12, we see some more back and forth between Pilate and the Jews, between Pilate and Jesus throughout Pilate is trying to set Jesus free, but then in verse 12 comes the kicker. Look at verse 12 with me where the Jews finally figure out Pilate's Achilles heel. They finally find the soft spot that they're going to be able to exploit. If you release this man, they say, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Sly words that are just pregnant with menace. You understand what they're saying. They're saying Caesar will not stand for any disloyalty. And if you let this guy who claims to be a king go, we're going to make sure that that gets back to him. And then we'll see how Caesar deals with you and we'll see just how well things go for you. And so in his feverish imagination, Pilate is forced to think about losing his power losing his prestige, losing his possessions, losing perhaps even his very life because of this judgment that he wants to make. And so he capitulates. 
Verses 13 through 16, he takes Jesus out to a place called the stone pavement. And there, Jesus stands before his judgment seat. And again, doesn't the text just drip with irony? Why? Because cosmically and eternally, those roles will be reversed. Pilate will stand and Jesus will sit. And Pilate will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what he has done in the body. And when that moment happens... As surely as it will, they will remember the last time that they met. And they will look each other in the eye and consider that they've not seen each other since this judgment was made. But here, in this first meeting, at around nine in the morning, though he's declared Christ innocent three times, Pilate sentences Jesus to die. How is it that Jesus can be confirmed as innocent repeatedly and still be condemned to die. The scripture is making it really clear for us. Innocent, 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 and yet dying. Ties into that great theme we see running throughout the scripture, that of course, Jesus is not dying for his own crimes. Jesus is dying for the crimes of another. So one theologian says, the innocent is taking the place of the guilty in order that the guilty might be treated as innocent. And all of this takes us back to verse 19, standing at the foot of the cross, seeing that written notice. Pilate has it prepared and then fastened to the cross. The charge for which he dies, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The Jews, of course, protest in verse 21. Hey, it should say only that he claimed to be the King of the Jews. To which Pilate responds, what I have written, I have written. On one hand, of course, uh, the wording suits Pilate, both because it was the only justification he had for the death penalty, but also, you suspect, because it so antagonized the Jews. But on the other hand, of course, we know that the truth of these words exceeded Pilate's own intent. The truth of them exceeded his own intent. Why? Because the one crucified was a king and is a king and his very death is a kingly act in the sense that it's his supreme achievement for us, his people. It's the act by which he conquers our foes. It's the act by which he secures our liberty. It's the act by which he establishes his own kingdom here on earth. And Pilate takes this fact. Don't you love the kind of... glorious irony we get now. Pilate takes this fact that Jesus is a king and publishes it for all to see. Verse 20, you see it there? Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, which was the language of Jerusalem, and in Latin, which was the language of the Roman administration, and in Greek, which was the language of the common empire. John Calvin wrote, God's providence governed Pilate's pen and dictated to him this commendation of the gospel, even though he did not understand what he wrote. But the same secret moving of the Spirit, it came about that the title was proclaimed in three languages. The Lord showed by this prelude that the time was already at hand when the name of the Son should be made known everywhere. Pilate's charge becomes the cross's first act of evangelism. Letting everyone know that here hangs the crucified king. Two questions as we close this morning. 
The first one rises from our text, simply this. Have you received this crucified king? Have you received this crucified king as your king? In the Gospel of Matthew, which also gives us a version of this account, do you remember what Pilate did next? He took a bowl, remember? And he came out to the crowd and he dipped his hands in it. In front of them all, he washed his hands and he said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And Pilate, we think. Do you really think that this dramatic gesture is going to absolve you of your guilt? That you had the opportunity to meet with Jesus? That you had the opportunity to get to know him? That you had the opportunity to find him innocent and yet you condemned him to death nonetheless? Do you think that the washing of your hands will somehow absolve you from the fact that you rejected him in the end? And is this not, in a sense... A warning to us as well. A warning to us this morning that this morning you and I have the opportunity to meet with Jesus. You and I have the opportunity to know Jesus. You and I are being invited to come and receive his grace. Receive forgiveness because he has taken our sin and and died upon the cross so that we can stand arm in arm with him before God on that day when we'll be judged. And say, not because of my strength, not because of my worth, not because of my good deeds, but because I am with him, I'm forgiven and I'm free. And if you have not received this this crucified king, if you're not trusting and resting in the grace that he offers you and the forgiveness that he offers you, the Bible warns you, you cannot wash your hands of this Christ. There's no bowl in this sanctuary. There's no bowl in this city. There's no bowl in this world in which you can wash to somehow cleanse yourself from guilt and shame. The Bible tells us that for people like you, for people like me, there's only one place we can wash. Isaiah 1.18 Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. How? Where does this washing come? 1 John 1 verse 7. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. God loves you and he offers you forgiveness here at the cross. Same forgiveness that he offers me. And we can act now, today, before we stand ourselves, find ourselves standing with Pilate. Receive this Jesus as king. Second final question I have for you from this text is, if you have received him as king... Does this king have full reign over your life? Does this king have full reign over your life? When you read these texts, the love of Christ is just so compelling. It costs him no less than everything. And in response, is there anything that we should keep from? Can he call us to anything that we should not respond in joyful obedience to? Can he not call us to generosity, to purity, to humility, and us not hear that as the joyful call to follow our king? Can he not call us even to the hard things of loving our enemies and putting others first and speaking of him when we have opportunity? Can he not call us to resist temptation or to trust him when it doesn't make sense or to get on board with his plan for our lives? Can he not call us to any of that? Has he not proved that he has our best interests in mind and our welfare at heart? So that when he asks us to do something, we can rest in the fact that we are not just doing something for his glory, but even for our own good. And yet so often, in my own heart, as I'm sure you find in yours, 
There are just areas, compartments, that I'm refusing to start to walk in joyful obedience in. Those acceptable sins, those areas that, you know, just haven't quite tackled yet. He's done enough for us. It is time for us to give him full reign over our lives. One theologian says, in the events surrounding Jesus' death, there are tiny rays of glory that seep through the cloud cover of humiliation. Tiny rays of glory that seep through the cloud cover of humiliation. These rays begin with the charge, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, my King, your King, I pray that he is. Father in heaven, thank you for this section of your word. And Father, we, we recognize just the reality that's made so plain that Christ hangs on the cross, but not because of the crimes he has committed. We know, Lord, from your word that he hangs not for, not for his own sin, but for the sin of another. That the innocent takes the place of the guilty in order that we, the guilty, might be treated as innocent. Father, I pray that you would help each of us to receive this king, that we would not seek to wash our hands of him, that we would not seek to absolve ourselves, but would come in complete dependence upon him. His perfect love, which cost him everything, demonstrates to us uh, that forgiveness is at hand. And then, Lord, help us to walk in joyful obedience, responding to the grace that is ours by giving you full reign over our lives. You are worthy of that. We can trust you with that. You um, deserve our allegiance. And so we ask that you would help us, Lord, to, to follow you with this sense of joy and the sense of obedience that your word calls us to. These things we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, which is always perfect, which is always matchless. Amen.